It was a real honor to be invited uh, both to teach at the uh, men's conference yesterday and then to preach uh, here this evening and before that at Springs Reformed uh, this morning. Um, this is a part of the world I've been to all of once, and um, my sea level body is reminding me uh, with every other breath or so that I'm not used to being here. But it's an unusually beautiful part of the world, which you know well, because most of you moved here in order to be in an unusually part of the beautiful part of the world. We're going to look at an unusually beautiful part of the scriptures, Psalm 93. Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 93, short psalm with a lot in it. Uh, If you are interested in using an outline, there's an annoyingly... um, Uh, alliterative outline on the back of your little bulletins. We're going to be looking at several aspects of uh, the psalm, uh, starting with its premise, moving on to its problem, resulting in its praise, leading to our practice, and preparing us for a prophecy. And if that sounds a little precious, it's not my usual procedure in my preaching, so bear with me. (laughs) Hear God's word, Psalm 93. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods have lifted up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, The Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Psalm 93 starts out in verses 1 and 2 with a premise, with a picture of the world. And we're going to unpack this for a few minutes. The first two verses, in case you've forgotten them already, are these. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. And the premise that the psalm frames out for us is simply this, that the world that we live in is stable because God sits above it on its throne. The world that we live in is stable because God sits above it in his throne. Now, the psalm gives us an image of God, which is very similar to several other places in Scripture, including places like Isaiah 6 and Isaiah's famous image, uh, vision of the Lord in his throne room. Revelation 1, where the apostle John sees uh, the Lord Jesus in his resurrection power. And the passage from Revelation that Pastor Sam read a few minutes ago. And that's an image of God robed in power and strength. And to be robed and clothed in Scripture is more than just an incidental detail. For God or for anybody, to be robed or clothed is for them to be awake. They have their clothes on. For them to be ready for battle or ready for work. You dress up in certain clothing to do different things. I have grody clothes that I wear for working 
when I have carpentry tasks and things like that to do. I have different clothes, slightly less grody, that I wear to preach in, and so on. To be robed is to be ready for a certain kind of work or a certain kind of situation. And we see that the Lord is robed in majesty, in the pride and glory that is fitting a king. He has his belt on. Uh, he is wearing a, a belt, and when we see belts in Scripture, that's not an accident or a small detail either. He is prepared for travel or for work or for war. Think about Ephesians chapter 6, it's the belt of truth. We're prepared not to just wear that belt, but to go do something wearing it. And we read that the world is established. And to talk about the world being established or fixed uh, or stable in some way is actually an introduction to the vision of the universe or the vision of the world that the Bible gives us. And we have a fancy word for that, and that's a cosmology. This is a picture of or an introduction to the three-story cosmology of the Bible. Now, we see this show up in a number of different places, including in the Ten Commandments. When we read in Exodus 20, verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And in the imagination or the the visual of the world that the scripture gives us, this is the spiritual meaning of the things we see around us. The world in this situation is the inhabited or the cultivated world, the world that we might live in and work in, as opposed to just the land or the dirt itself. So we might talk about uh, the world versus the earth in English. And for the world to be established is for it to be fixed, both in the sense of it's not going anywhere and in the sense of the Lord is keeping it from falling apart. The world that we live in is prepared, stable, appropriate, ready. We'll talk about what that means a little bit more in a second. Now, the structure that we're given here in these, just these two verses is that the Lord is robed, therefore the world is fixed, and that the Lord's throne is fixed from everlasting. The Lord's power and authority lead to the world being okay, the world being stable. We read in other places, in Isaiah 66, for instance, that heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. In other words, we're not just hearing about the Lord as he is in heaven, but we're hearing about the Lord as he relates to the earth. Not just the raw power of the living God, but what God has to do with the world that we live in. That he stabilizes it. He keeps it from falling apart. And that's really important. Because after the first great human question, which is, is there a God? Is there a God in heaven? The next great human question is, does that God care about what's happening down here? So what is the Lord dressed for? He's robed in majesty. He has Uh, He's put on strength as a belt. What is he dressed for? Because, again, we dress for something. He's dressed to bring order out of chaos, to bring peace where there is war, to make something out of nothing, to create meaning where all seems vain and empty. In some, the Lord is robed and wears strength as a belt in order to bring stability to a chaotic world. Now we're going to hear about that chaotic world. Verse 3, the floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. And the problem that we see presented in the psalm is the chaos 
and tragedy and sometimes evil make themselves known in the world, right? All is not well all the time. Things happen. All kinds of things happen. And the Bible gives us a theological vision of the world, again, a cosmology. It's not a solar system view where we see the sun at the center of everything, nor is it an old-fashioned solar system view where we see the earth at the center of everything, nor is it a flat earth vision. It's, again, a three-story version or vision of the world where we see heaven above, earth below, the waters beneath the earth, and these waters are floods. In the three-story universe, these are the waters below the earth, always in danger of breaking out at any time. And in the story of creation, God tames and rules over those waters. That bottom story chaos seems like it's in danger of breaking out at any time. In natural disaster, invasion and war, famine and pestilence, personal suffering and oppression, the floods Lift up, O Lord. The floods lift up their heads. The floods lift up their voice. And of course, the great disaster that every one of us will face, unless Jesus comes back first, is the disaster of death. The waters under the earth, the floods that lift up their voice, have to be tamed. They want to roar. They want to pound. They want to thunder. And if someone does not tame them, then they reverse creation to the time when the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. The peace and stability that we enjoy from day to day and year to year are not natural. They don't happen all by themselves. But that is just what God did at creation and just what he does now constantly. This is the work of God's providence and his care for his people and all of his creatures, even those that don't call on his name and love him. We read in Genesis chapter 1, the answer to this formlessness and void, uh, this darkness that's over the face of the deep. But the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Or your translation may say something like, was fluttering over the face of the waters. Think about a little bit later in the book of Genesis where we read about the rivers around Eden. Rivers flowed out of Eden to water the earth. And this is not God, or this is God not eliminating the waters, but channeling them and ordering them to the good of the earth. So God is not only the first gardener in creating the garden in Eden, but the first irrigator, the first canal digger. The flood Almost all cultures have a memory of a primeval flood that destroyed the inhabited world. But the Bible story tells us both that the flood was a servant of God in his judgment and that he promised to never destroy the world in the same way again. In other words, this is not the floods getting away from God. They are a tool in his hand. The Red Sea And the Jordan, great miracles of deliverance where God uses waters which, uh, the waters which uh, Egypt worshipped to destroy them. But his people pass through on dry land. Later, a smaller baptism of the same kind happens when Israel passes through the Jordan. This is God asserting his authority over the forces that would threaten to destroy his people. In his own personal exile, David the king crossed the the brook Kidron as he fled from the rebellion 
of his son Absalom, just as Jesus would on the night of his betrayal nine centuries later. And when judgment and exile are looming against Judah before the Babylonian exile, Isaiah warns, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the, rif- the river, the Euphrates River, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. Sorry, that's Assyrian exile, not Babylonian. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land. What are the waters that are raising their voice against us? What are the forces of chaos and tragedy that raise their voices against us? They could be death-taking, one that we love, They could be a family or marriage that is spinning out of control, going utterly unlike we planned and thought they would. Car accidents. Man, there's one that will bring chaos into your world in a second. Hurt, betrayal, the breakdown of a friendship or a relationship, a crisis at work, a crisis at school, a crisis with your your health. How about the world as a whole? Well, we see literal waters rising up. I live in a very, very soggy town. When there's a king tide and a rain, we can't drive down a couple of streets. And I've been with the fire department pumping out basements because the sump pumps just can't handle it. But we worry on our part, in our part of the world about hurricanes and tornadoes in some other places, not ours, earthquakes, tsunamis, floods. It could be things falling apart in our society Human floods rising up. Hard-won lessons are forgotten. Wisdom is abandoned. Masses of people are addicted to screens and sins and substances. We see in the Bible over and over again a, a really ugly threesome, war and famine and pestilence. War is in our world, though it's not right on top of us. Famine is not a live reality for us now in our rich nation, but around the world right now, millions are hungry, and that's more than doubled since before COVID. And a million are in full-blown famine, which hasn't happened in a while. Hilariously, sorry, it's a little black humor, I guess, I looked at the World Food Program because I was wondering how many people are dealing with hunger right now. And the World Food Program, which is a UN-run program, states on their webpage, the global community must not fail on its promise to end hunger and malnutrition by 2030. That's not going to happen. And the third rider of the apocalypse is always with them or near at hand, and that is pestilence. The waters roar and pound and rise up against peace and plenty and order and the everyday blessings that God pours out on the world. Well, what is the answer to that? What is the answer that God gives to this constant threat? Verse 4, mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. So this leads us to praise. God is mightier than the challenges mounted against him and against his world. The authority of God on his heavenly throne is greater than the chaotic power 
of the waters. We read in Psalm 29, The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. We read in Psalm 124, The floods here are a vision of people rising up against God's people. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. The floods lifting up again. In Psalm 32, verse 6, a psalm of peace and praise. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. When the world seems to be falling apart, or when our own personal worlds seem to be falling apart, and with surprisingly reg- surprising regularity, those things seem to happen at the same time, we call on the living God who is enthroned above the flood. Well, how does God silence the roaring of the waters? He rescues and he rules, and it happens in that order. He rescues or saves and he rules. Exodus 20, the beginning of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is his rescue. The whole premise of God calling us to keep his commandments is that he has already shown us his grace. You shall have no other gods before me. That's his rule. He rescues from trouble. He rescues from our sins. Our incredible habit of making bad situations worse and good situations bad. He rescues us from our idolatry, our way of taking good things, whether they're food or marriage or power or health or fun or beauty, and becoming their slaves instead of giving thanks for them to the living God. And then he rules over us. We walk on God's earth, and when we're tossed into the water, we swim in God's sea. This is, again, the doctrine of divine providence. Whatever happens to us is part of God's plan, not some accident that he couldn't help, not some eventuality that he didn't see coming. And furthermore, as we know, In a verse that's cited sometimes at exactly the wrong time, we know that all things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Even disaster, war, pandemic, hunger are tools in his hand to further his good plan. Even the raging of the nations and rulers that hate him, those things will be used by him. And when we see things in the rear view, at the end of days, if not sooner, we will say it was good that those things happened. It's always hard right now. And we never see fully, but one day we will see clearly. The world is established. Human life may suffer great blows, but it will not be wiped off the earth entirely by a flood or anything else until the day that God has appointed for judgment. Verse 5, your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. And this leads us 
to a practice. See, the authority of God over the waters, over the chaos in the world, is not just something we watch, it's something we are called to participate in. What do we mean by that? You see, God rules not just providentially in his personal sovereign control over everything that happens, but he rules through his word. Your decrees are very trustworthy. The law of the Lord is given to us, not just the bare law, but the law as teacher here. That's what's meant by decrees, sometimes translated testimonies, sometimes translated warnings, not just the commandments themselves, but the way that they teach us and shape us and form us. This is the rule of God that calms the waters. In the next breath, we read that holiness befits your house. Well, what is God's house that's spoken of here? There's a lot of answers you could give to that question. The mountain and sanctuary of the Lord, we read in Exodus 15. The world that he has built as his throne room, or rather as his footstool. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? Above all, holiness befits the church of Jesus Christ, which is described in 1 Timothy as the house of God, the church of the living God. God reaches down from heaven and gives us his word. What's the rest of that Isaiah passage? Isaiah 66, verse 2. All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Order and peace and stability come into the world. When instead of running around in a panic or trying to create a rival world order, which is the tendency of every godless empire in history, whether it's Babel or Pharaoh in Egypt, people listen to God's word and do what he calls them to do. When we stop telling half-truths and start living honestly, when we stop fearing our enemies and are courageous enough to love them, when we stop it with the porn and the fornication and treat the marriage bed as honorable, when we stop gossiping and backbiting, start minding our own business and praying for others, when we stop looking out for our own interests and we judge fairly and impartially, when we learn patience and trust, when we practice mercy and love kindness, when we stop drugging ourselves with entertainment or substances, or luxury, or travel, when we set out, in a word, to live quietly, to mind our own affairs, and to work with our hands, then two things happen. First, we start to change, and second, the world starts to change. It starts to stabilize. It becomes less terrifying, less chaotic. Work starts to have meaning, not just a paycheck. Family starts to heal, and not just be a source of misery. Everything doesn't get fixed, of course, not this side of heaven, but the presence of God breaks through the clouds and the rivers and the sea become calm under his hand. And finally, the psalm is also a prophecy because God kept his promise to rule and rescue a chaotic world ultimately by sending his son. 
Jesus is the one whose yoke is easy and burden is light, but also the one who comes to bring a sword, a sword that will even pierce the heart of his own mother. Jesus is the one who spoke with authority, not like the religious leaders of his day, or really like the religious leaders of any day, if we're being honest. And he didn't just speak to teach us, he acted to rescue us. Christ is the one who walks on the sea. Think about that as a vision of Psalm 93 enacted. The Lord, his voice is over the waters. He is on top of the sea. He sleeps through the storm. He silences the waters with a word. In the book um, Moby Dick, Herman Melville shows us his idea of God in the person of the white whale, a menace, an enemy of mankind, mindless and malevolent. But God is not the storm. What we see in Christ is God laying aside power for a time, yet retaining his holiness and authority, descending so far from heaven that he not only comes to earth, to that center story of the three-story universe, but dies and lets the waters under the earth engulf him. He can speak the words of Jonah in the heart of the fish. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. God is not the storm. He is the Lord and master of the storm who has gone through the storm. The firmness, the stability of the world came at a cost, and that was the cost of the death of the Son of God. For the seas to not overwhelm us, they had to overwhelm him. Jesus is not just the great teacher or example. He is the key of David, the wisdom of God, the King, the Lord, the Eternal One. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He's the one who connects heaven to earth so that the blessing of God's throne comes down and calms the waters for us to to pass safely through fire and water he had to go through them before us through death itself to resurrection and a kingdom that will never fade or pass away one last encouragement in Matthew 14 Jesus sends his disciples across the Sea of Galilee while he stays to pray on a mountain. I want you to think about uh, something I'm keenly aware of at the moment, which is altitude. Jesus is up on the mountain praying as his disciples. He goes up on the mountain praying as his disciples set out from the stability of the dry land across the Sea of Galilee. And while they're out on that sea, a storm rises And they're in grave danger. And then somewhere around four in the morning, Jesus comes walking across the sea to them. Uh, The disciples freak out, which it's easy to see why. They start saying, it's a ghost. And he he responds, take courage, it is I. Or take courage, I am. And Peter says to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus responds, Come. But Peter gets scared of the storm and begins to sink until Jesus reaches out and pulls him out of the water. Do you see that Jesus 
comes down from the presence of God, not merely like Moses to tell us what to do, but to reach into the water and pull us out from the storm and that which would destroy us. And having accomplished that rescue once and for all, he is robed and reigning at the right hand of the Father, ready to pull us out again in the disasters of this world. And finally, at the end of all things, to raise us from the dead. Let's pray. Lord, all of us have tasted from time to time the power and the terror of the waters beneath the earth. We're reminded from time to time that death and disaster are never that far away. And the older we get, Lord, the more we see that. The more things we see going on around us, the more things happen to us. And the more of a temptation to fear and terror we have. But Lord, we praise you that you are reigning over all things, that you are over the waters, that your throne is fixed from of old, and therefore, though the floods lift up, mightier far than the floods is the Lord on high. We thank you for that comfort in times of chaos and uncertainty in the world around us, when we wonder if the good things that we knew of old will continue. We wonder if wise men and women will arise to lead and to help, to care and to rule in the years to come. And we wonder, Lord, in the times of disaster in our own lives. But Lord, you have been so gracious as to not just tell us about this, but to show us by sending your son Jesus who not only came down and experienced what we experienced, the waves and the billows went right over him. We thank you that Jesus is crucified and is risen and is reigning over all things. And we pray that when the floods lift up their voice, we would remember always that through Jesus Christ, your son, and his finished work, you are mighty over all things. And the world will not be washed away until the moment when you decide the end is come and something far better is about to begin. Lord, give us that comfort. Teach us that truth. Put it deep in our hearts and not just in our minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.